Welcome to CF Digital, the show that asks the tough questions about child custody, co-parenting, and child attachment. Parent and family court practitioners from around the world and across many disciplines will find these programs valuable. Dr. Mark Roseman, founder of CF Digital and publisher of Contemporary Family Magazine states, as with our magazine Contemporary Family, CF Digital focuses on the global issues of child custody, child development, and family policy. Our global guests and panelists are the pioneers, practitioners, and researchers who will share their many unique perspectives on the issues of interventions, treatment, and law. Whether you are a therapist, attorney, legislator, or parent, you will find a fountain of information to help with your chosen discipline here at CF Digital. Please share and write us your thoughts on the program. Welcome back to another episode of CF Digital, where we answer the questions and give you the interviews that you want pertaining to family court, family issues. Today's episode, we have a very distinguished guest with us, the Honorable Ronnie Joe Siegel, retired family court judge out of New Jersey. Uh, judge Siegel spent eight years as a court as a judge of the Superior Court Chancery Division in the family part. She is also serves as an arbitrator of the broad spectrum of family court issues in New Jersey. She served as the assistant DA in the Bronx District Attorney's Office. She serves on the Women's Leadership Committee, chair of the Women's Rights Information Center since 2017, former president of the Association of Federal Bar of the State of New Jersey, and now practices family law at Poshmanstein, Walder, and Hayden, where she once again has put herself off the bench and now practicing as a, an attorney. We also have Julie Grayson with us again. Uh, so let's get right into this because this is such a monumental interview with having another re a judge willing to come on the show and speak about family courts and family law. So Julie, let's let's start with you as first as first question. Thank you so much, Judge Siegel, for being with us. It's an honor. Uh, my first question is, should family court judges have family law experience as practitioners before they're appointed to the family court bench? It's a good question uh, because there's a desire by litigants uh, to want someone who has walked in their shoes. And so there's a benefit of having a judge who has gone through the process, either through their own personal experience or through being an advocate as an attorney. Uh, but if I could take everyone through the process of becoming a judge just a little bit, um, I've formulated a different conclusion. So my end result takes me somewhere else. Uh, it's very hard to become a judge in the state of New Jersey. Uh, you are nominated by a senator and your application goes to the governor who uh, does an extensive application, a uh, state trooper review, a medical review, and, and distinguished litigators to make sure that you have the temperament and knowledge. And then it's sent to your local bar association for review. You're sent to the state bar association for review. You go to the Senate because uh, a judge is appointed in New Jersey. Sometimes in other states, they're they're voted on, but in, in New Jersey, they are nominated by the governor and appointed by the Senate. So your last review, so to speak, is from a Senate Judiciary Committee, and then you're voted on. 
uh, at the end of the day after, if you if you make all those cuts, you go to judicial school to prepare. You're given a mentor, another judge on the bench. And on an annual and regular basis, you are trained when you get to the particular area of family court. So my thought is you're you're to the best degree, you've received the information needed. And after all those steps, I think what's most important in light of who we have as people that appear before us, you need judges that are gender neutral, uh, that are fair-minded, that are uh, educated, uh, that can listen very carefully, read all the documentation experience. Sometimes that litigation experience, or meaning that family court background has, I'm going to say, prejudiced them because they have a certain proclivity one way or another. So to me, the better view is to have a judge that is neutral, a judge that is open-minded and fair-minded so that he can hear the evidence from the people that appear before him. So it was an interesting question. At first blush, I, I like the idea that someone would have that hands-on experience, uh, but I think I need somebody who is open-minded to hear the facts of every case. Let me ask this real quick, uh, Judge Siegel. We, we, you know, you gave your answer on the training and everything. Do you believe that family court judges should at some point prior to taking the bench be ordered to not have contact with their children so they can understand the gravity of these decisions? I thought about that. And no, the answer is no. I think no individual walking this earth think that the absence of their children doesn't have a profound effect upon them. Uh, if you're a parent, you've been with your child uh, 24 hours a day. You may go to work, but at the end of the day, you tuck that child in bed to say goodnight, hopefully most every day. The minute you choose to get a divorce, even if it's, quote, 50-50, that means one half of the time you are unable to do that. I think uh, we all recognize that that has a profound effect and I need not lose my children to to understand. Um, is the shortage of qualified judges nationally and in New Jersey negatively affecting the outcomes for children and families in family court? There's a uh, an overwhelming loss of judges on the bench in, in New Jersey. There should be, I think it is, let me just give you the numbers so you could appreciate it. If every judge sat on the bench in every county, we would have 433 uh trial court judges in our counties. Right now, there are 64 that are vacant. Wow. But there are two vicinages and more to come that have no civil trials and no family court trials. They are down 25%. So in one county where there are 20 judges that are supposed to be sitting, they have lost five, only 15 judges are sitting. In another county, there are 28 judges that should be sitting, nine are absent. In those two counties, our chief judge has determined there can be no family court trials, no trials with regard to custody, no trials with regard to divorce, because we don't have sufficient judges to handle the other matters in the family part. Court applications for parenting time, Oftentimes we make motions for relief. 
There's a 24-day cycle from the time you file your motion till the time you answer till the time that the court has an opportunity to give an opinion. Right now, no less than two and a half months go by before you get to have your motion heard. Well, you can imagine there are some imperative issues that occur, whether it is financial, child support, or, or alimony, or parenting time. I want to see my child and I'm not able to see my child. It's going to take you two and a half months before a judge just gets to hear it. With regard to the back backlog of cases in the family part, and this is only due, this is only due because of the lack of judges, three to six years in some counties between the time a complaint for divorce is filed until the time you reach trial. Where does that happen? That happens oftentimes in your most litigious cases where parties fight a lot or in your more complex cases. So that, that is a real problem. Then the pandemic came. And then for a period of time, the judges or the, the courts were closed. So that complicated an already difficult situation. Ironically, the, the good things that came out of the pandemic, of which there were few, was that you could have remote hearings such as we're having now, where some proceedings could be handled on a remote basis so that people didn't have to come to court, they could have their matters heard administratively by going uh, by a telephone conference call or by a Zoom conference call. But with that exception, we are really set back in our ability to address family court problems. So I just wanted to ask you, in situations where there's an emergent motion or an order to show cause, and for the listeners, that's essentially where there is an issue that arises that a litigant might feel is emergent, and the case will, so to speak, be taken out of turn and will be taken pretty swiftly by a judge and not go through the process of what you, uh, Judge Siegel said, a normal motion practice that should take about two and a half months. If a parent hasn't seen a child for an extended period of time, and there are certain circumstances surrounding that, uh, do you feel that those kinds of cases should be treated um, like an emergent motion given certain sets of facts in the case? That is an emergency. What is more, what is more of an emergency? than a parent and a child that are deprived from being with one another. So clearly, if there was ever an emergency, and they always say, you know, with orders to show cause, they're not scheduled to be financial issues. They're scheduled to be something of grave importance. That is an order to show cause situation. And yes, it should be filed, has to be heard. What if any court, uh, family court reforms or changes of practice, do you believe would better meet the needs of children and families in the family court system? I know that's a broad question, but if you can just address a couple of points that you feel, um, both as an attorney and someone who's had extensive experience as a judge, uh, would be able to help the uh, children and families meet their needs better. All right, so let me go through a few. If I would say, what do we need, practically speaking, we must have more judges to fill those spots. If you think about the pressure on a judge, even the most well-meaning or educated judge, if he has too many cases, how much time can he spend in court? Anecdotally, I've heard so many times that, that litigants walk away, parents walk away saying, I'm not sure if that judge read my papers 
I'm not sure I had enough time to explain my situation. And in reality, how could that otherwise have been if you have so many cases on your calendar and you work very hard from from 8.30 to 4.30, you still can't hear all the cases that are scheduled before you. So you need more judges to attend to all those matters, right? So that's maybe part one. I think it's also hard for litigants not to have the benefit of counsel available to them. It's not to say it can't be done. Um, in our state, we have what we call pro se kits, and you could read very carefully what has to be set for so a judge can hear your application. But on the other hand, this is your first um, go-round, so to speak, and it's a very important go-round. You don't want to get it wrong. So wouldn't it be helpful if you had the benefit of an attorney to guide you through this process somebody who is sophisticated, knowledgeable, and experienced in whatever the areas are, so you know exactly how to frame your case. So if I said anything, I would say there has to be attorneys that are financially available. Now, we have in some circumstances pro bono assignments so that we do say in some instances, and it really is in the domestic violence area, we offer pro bono attorneys for the, the I'm going to say the victim or the person who is um, seeking a restraining order. Uh, it's not provided for the defendant and the consequences for a defendant if a final restraining order is ent entered against that person is serious in nature. But wouldn't it be helpful if both sides had attorneys to assist them? And I say that in particular in the family part, I think it would be helpful if we required on a pro bono basis, if the parties couldn't afford it, attorneys that were savvy enough to help uh, these litigants get through the process. Um, I think what I'd say is more mediation. We have, for example, uh, mediation that's required by way of an early settlement panel. Three experienced attorneys sit with parties um, after discovery is completed in their case, and they try to help the parties resolve their matter. So that is a, a free service that we order to, to litigants. And if they can't resolve their case at that point in time, we have, again, on a pro bono basis, two hours where an attorney or a retired judge such as myself volunteers their time to try to help them again resolve their case. Uh, but that concept about Having mediation throughout the court process would be very helpful because I think parties eventually get there and they recognize it's better to settle their case than it is to litigate their case. I can't underscore uh, that you have control over your case if you settle it. If you let a judge decide your case at trial, you have a judge who is not necessarily able to be creative, even if he would like to be, because he is limited by statute or case law. So he can't do some things that he would like to do, which you can do if you set a kind of time needed uh, to a matter. It's not that they don't want to, but if you have a page limit of 35 pages, every side can only put 35 pages in and you can only say so much. How, how does a judge appreciate all the nuances in, in that person's family? That's why 
mediation, uh, alternative dispute resolution is so very important to give each party control over their case rather than leave it to a judge. And again, I have the highest respect and admiration for, for judges, especially those that work in the family court. They're there because they really want, they care and they want to be there. You know, you have an option. You could be in the criminal part. You could be in the civil part. Why would you be in the family part? You don't have other places. You you try all your cases. You try to encourage people to resolve it. So they want to be there. But there's a lot of burnout because you can't devote the amount of time you need to helping these people. So I guess I would underscore mediation or added opportunities to resolve your case. Um, Adjunct community services. So what do I think? Uh, there are so many things we don't know as judges, but we have to call upon others to give us help so that we can make reasoned decisions. Um, you know, well, COVID, for example, was a situation where two uh, well-meaning parents uh, looked at getting a COVID shot differently. Some felt it was positive for their youngster. Some felt it was uh, negative for their youngster. Uh, courts then took advantage of a guardian ad litem to find medical information to enable a judge to know uh, what to do in that circumstance. Co-parenting counseling, uh, family therapists, divorce coaches. What, what do you do with children that have mental disabilities, children that have physical disabilities, uh, there are educational experts that can aid the court in reaching a decision. So what would I say? I think it's a, it takes a village. It really takes not only the judges, but it also takes all the social services available in the community to join with the court system to, to help us understand what would be in a child's best interest. Again, parents come to the court, I think, well-meaning, but have different perspectives as to what might be the right thing for their youngster. And a judge can't know everything. So they have to turn to other people that are, quote, experts, educational professionals that might guide us or help us and help the parties reach intelligent decisions as to what would what would be best for the youngster. So I guess that that's my takeaways. You think that um, shared parenting should be the starting point and the norm in custody cases. You know, kids um, who go through the court system oftentimes, if it's protracted, uh, deal with many different experts in their cases. And um, this is not the norm in a childhood. You know, children sit in custody evaluators' uh, offices, mental health professionals' offices. Unfortunately, in many cases, there's law enforcement involved, court orders where kids uh, drop off and pick up in high conflict cases or at police departments. And I was just wondering, as a uh, default, if 50-50 should be the norm. Well, ironically, ironically, shared parenting is the policy of the, of the state. Uh, there are two, two areas that we have to address when we look at parents and their children. One is legal custody. And the policy of New Jersey, policy by statute is that parents should have joint legal custody. And what does that mean? That means they have an equal right to weigh in on all the important decisions in a youngster's life, uh, from extracurricular activities to 
the practice of religion to going to a public school versus a private school, any of the important decisions, parents have equal rights, and that is the policy of the state. Uh, the dilemma obviously comes in when the parties can't agree, and even if you were an intact family, you could disagree as to whether or not your youngster should go to a public school or a private school, whether your youngster um, should go to soccer versus hockey. Those things happen. I can't tell you that it only happens in a divorce situation. It happens in all situations. But the presumption is equal rights to equal parents. And when that is altered is when there's a particular problem. So when you're dealing with uh, substance abuse, whether it's alcohol or drugs, when you're dealing with domestic violence, where you can't have parties on the same footing, then the question arises, can you really have joint legal custody and decision-making when you have a particular problem? Your, your more particular question had to do with what we call residential custody parenting time. Should it be 50-50? Should we work it out? And again, there is a policy in New Jersey that parents should be 50-50. The issue is, how do you work it out? So one party lives in New York and one party lives in New Jersey and they have to go to school in one place or another. Shared parenting might be difficult in terms of transportation. So it becomes fact sensitive, right? It becomes fact sensitive. And you have to look at a parent's schedule and they work it out. They have to be cooperative and can and communicate with one another um, and focus on the best interests of the youngster. Sometimes a, a schedule of one parent doesn't lend itself. The police officers, for example, or firefighters are on a particular schedule. You can't divide the week in half. Uh, but the intention is there. So I would say to you, the intention is there, at least in, in New Jersey. I can't tell you in other states, but in my state, 50-50 is what we want to accomplish. But then we have to figure out, can it be accomplished? And then we have to be a little bit sensitive, um, as you brought out, Julie, to the age of the youngster. Some children fare well traveling from one household to another. Uh, children of a smaller age may not fare as well. Children of a Adolescent age may be resentful of having to do it just because, I don't know, if you've ever had an adolescent telling them what to do was awfully hard on occasion. Um, and that has nothing to do with what we have in print. It has to do with recognizing um, the age of a youngster who's going to tell us what they want to do. Um, but I do agree in the principle that parents are equal and we strive to have them share parenting time in an equal manner. I think one of the more important things that, and that you brought up, Judge, was that even though we call and they they call it equal parenting, 50-50 parenting, there's never a true 50-50 because the, the child's schedule has to be looked at. You know, like you brought up school. You can't have a child in one school while he's with parent A and then in another school while he's with parent B for a week on, week off. It doesn't make logic for the child. Let me ask this because this was also brought up. And do you believe that false allegations, which are commonly known in family court as the silver bullet tactics, which are used by attorneys, uh, should that be prosecutable in a family court setting? Well, I can tell you what happened. So let me talk to you a little bit about domestic violence and uh, the way it occurs or the way we proceed with those allegations in our state. Um, 
an individual files a complaint for domestic violence. There are, I think, 13 enumerated offenses as to what is an act of domestic violence. So it'll be an assault. It'll be a battery. It could be a kidnapping. It could be harassment. It could be sexual violation, uh, cyber, uh, a variety of different things. So it has to come within that ambit. And a judge, once the allegation is made, listens carefully to the allegation. Here's only one side. Here's only one side and determines whether or not for the time being, a temporary restraining order should be put into effect. Now, what happens is doesn't affect the child unless the act of domestic violence, it alleged, occurs in the presence of the youngster. So now that act only occurs uh, by the litigant against the offender. But within a 10-day period of time, within a 10-day period of time, there has to be a full-blown hearing. And at that point in time, the judge has an opportunity to hear both sides, has an opportunity for the person who's filed for a restraining order to set forth that claim that there's been an act of domestic violence and that that person needs a restraining order to protect their life, safety, or well-being, two-pronged two attack. And the defendant, the person who is responding, has an opportunity. So at the end of the day, the judge has to determine, one, whether that has happened. Has there been an act? Has there been harassment, et cetera? Does the person need the restraining order to protect their life, safety, and well-being? And if so, uh, what are the consequences? They have to meet the burden beyond a preponderance of the evidence, and then they enter a restraining order. Um, but my view in general is that's an opportunity for a judge to see both parties and weigh credibility. You see, uh, you have to make an assessment. So that discussion or that issue that you raised what about uh, that tactic? I hope that after a period of time, a judge is wise enough to know uh, whether or not the complaint, the allegation that's been raised is true or whether there's a lack of credibility. And if you do not find that the litigant is credible, there won't be um, a restraining order entered. And I would say I think judges take it seriously. Why? Because at least in New Jersey, you know, restraining orders are permanent in nature. They don't go away with the passage of time. So although there are opportunities to ask that the restraining order be set aside, for the most part, once it's entered, it's entered permanently. Now, does it affect a party's contact with a youngster? The answer is no, unless the judge makes a determination that the child has been affected by the act of domestic violence. And oftentimes, unless it occurs in the presence of the, the youngster, the judge says that's an independent situation. And uh, so, so I think the important part of it is maybe it's protection for the person who has been the victim if there is a restraining order, but not necessarily has it uh, touched upon the children. So I think that depends on, again, a set of facts where the children witnesses to this abuse so did i answer the question clint yes i mean the thing we were getting at with this question was the silver bullet tactic is basically a made-up accusations of domestic violence that gain a foothold in these custody cases should these people who bring these false allegations up be prosecuted for perjury 
I mean, these these are allegations that don't just simply affect short term. These affect people, individual parents, children, long term, their livelihood, their their social circles, the children's, you know, their, their upbringing. Uh, and a lot of the people that we've spoken to over the I've been doing this for eight years, they'll tell me that, you know, it changed their whole life. Friends have left them because of the simple allegations of this. Children have grown up thinking that their parents were abusive. Then later on, to find out they weren't. Uh, but yet, the accusing party that, never gets held accountable for it. Well, so so let's say this: I'm saying to you through the court process, not a simple allegation, but going through the court process. I'm saying to you, it's the judge that has to evaluate the credibility of the allegations and assuming the judge weighing the importance of entering a restraining order. I mean, it weighed upon me uh, that I knew that I was affecting somebody's life. You you couldn't take a, a plane ride without knowing that you were on a permanent registry if there was a restraining order against you. You applied for a job. It would show up if, if you had a restraining order against you. If you don't think that it doesn't affect any judge that knows that there's great weight that has to be given if you enter a restraining order. So on the one hand, if you believe there was domestic violence, an act occurred, that person needs a restraining order for the future, that's important. But you weigh it against the significance of the harm and the weight that is going to occur to the person against whom you're entering that order. You're really careful and serious. So Although I don't dispute that people can make false allegations, when you get to the court situation, you're asking me, I think the judges seriously consider it. They take a look at not only the elements, but in addition, credibility, and then then they call it. That's why it's a hard job, because they have to make a hard decision, right? I wanted to just switch gears and talk about... Um open access in the courtrooms when motions are going on, when trials are going on. And um, do you think that there should be uh, jury trials in the family courts? And uh, what information or open proceedings are the public allowed to be uh, um, uh, witness to? All right. So our courts are open. And in the family courts, they are open with some exceptions uh, where they want to be protective of children's rights. So adoption proceedings and uh, abuse and neglect proceedings are closed proceedings because of the children. That exception, all proceedings are open. And what's interesting is all proceedings, whether there's a matter going on or not, are recorded 24 hours a day. And so uh, when you go into the courtroom, right in front of the judge, is a recording device that records everything that takes place. So whether there's a matter on or not, be very careful what you say because you are being recorded and that recording goes back to our capital. Separate from that, there is a recording of any matter. So there are two recordings, one that goes on the entirety of the time that the court is in session from May 30 from the time the court opens until the end the court closes on all the time. And then a second one that's on when uh, the matter is for the court. So those are two different times. Court proceedings are open. Uh, they, there are records. Uh, there's no limitation on any kind of a document. If you wanted to take a look at a case that wasn't your case, but you felt it was important to understand what was going on in a like situation, 
the records are open. So that exists. But the idea uh, that there should be jury trials, I think to myself, I've just shared with you that in the more difficult cases, three and a half to six years, it'll take to get a case concluded. Can you imagine if we wanted to impanel a jury um, to listen to those cases? I guess I'm asking you though, and I think this is important. What are we looking for if you felt, not you, Julie, but if if the public thought it might be helpful to have um, the public more involved in the family law arena, what is it that we're striving to accomplish? Because maybe that's uh, the more particular and better question. Uh, so do I think jury trials would be helpful? Not, I don't, I don't think so. But maybe there's something that by asking that question, people want, I guess, uh, more exposure, more information, more knowledge, more openness. And, and I agree with that. I, I agree. So what would you say? What is it that we're trying to accomplish for the public? I think what we're trying to accomplish is um, integrity in the judiciary, in the minds of the public. I know in many uh, vicinages in New Jersey, there are information offices or little kiosks where there's a plethora of pam uh, pamphlets, documents that the public can pick up. And uh, in fact, I was talking to Clint about this earlier. There was one booklet about what the courts can do better in order to effectuate uh, not only transparency and accountability, but um, more integrity in the judiciary. And there's different forms that people can fill out and put them in boxes with their recommendations. I personally would encourage anybody that is listening to this podcast um, uh, who is either involved in the court system or wants to sit in and listen to these hearings and feel that they can be helpful um, to put their suggestions in, write them out, um, and uh, there are uh, people in the courthouses that it is directed to. Typically, it is the administrative wing of the courthouse where there would be an administrative judge and a lot of um, uh, support workers that go over these kinds of documents, including in many courthouses, uh, ombudsman, which is the uh, uh, person who deals with uh, pro se procedural questions in the courthouses. And they also have input into um, reviewing these recommendations and speaking to the administrative office of the courts about it. So um, please um, uh, go to your courthouses, uh, fill out these documents. If you see something that you're not pleased with, please notify the courts uh, because the courts are supposed to be for the people. I was gonna say, that's a, a wonderful point. And in addition, I, I think litigants or, or the public should know if you are unhappy with the behavior of the judge, although I am not volunteering this, I am saying you can you can file a complaint. You can air your grievance. Uh, judges have a code of conduct that they have to comply with. And if they don't comply with it, then they are there are penalties, just as attorneys have a code of uh, of ethics and, and responsibility. Judges have that too. So if that occurs in your case, or if you observe something that you think is untoward, this is your moment to speak up and not be afraid of it. So 
So, but you're right about the omnibudsman. Uh, yes. If you see something, say something is, is the message out there. You need yes. to be able to be your own best yes. advocate. And uh, if you are in the court system and pro se, as Judge Siegel said earlier, there are so many laws and nuances uh, in the family court that um, there are ombudsman's offices for pro se litigants. If you have a procedural question, by all means, go in there to be able to make sure you have the right documents and uh, you, you, you know the process. And um, I thank you, Judge Siegel, for also mentioning um, the organizations that, that could hope, hopefully assist litigants who are pro se uh, get counsel. I didn't mention before, sometimes obviously parents are acrimonious, but sometimes parents uh, don't appreciate that they put their children in the middle. And um, there's a wonderful program that everybody can listen to called uh, Children in the Middle or Children in Between. You not only can take it in person, but it's actually better if you take it online. And 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 the value of that program is in a in a in a few easy lessons, so to speak. You you see that the innocent comments that you make, uh, you're putting your youngster in the middle of a of the of the divorce proceeding, and you may not appreciate it. Uh, I will uh, tell your dad uh, he didn't give me uh, child support or else I would have taken you for pizza, you know, um, or tell your dad to give me the child support check. I didn't get it in the mail. So when I, I, I need it now or uh, tell your mom you can't go to uh, too bad you can't go to the wedding because uh, uh, such and such happened. Innocent comments um, that that youngster, because children love both their parents. Uh, they think both their parents are good parents, and they don't want to be in the middle of their sparring. Uh, so I can't say to you, parents intentionally say these things, but uh, they do it without thinking. And just seeing that taking that course makes you aware that maybe you are not intentionally, but unintentionally putting them um, as victims in the middle of your uh, acrimony. So Clint, you were well, going to say something, which I think was probably pretty important. <laughs> yeah, it's it. Uh, we're 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 courteous to our guests here. Unlike other shows, we'll cut somebody off. We let our <laughs> guests speak. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the things because we were talking about jury trials and and family court, I, and I think Julie brought it up pretty good. Is that there is such, you know. When you look at our judiciary courts, family court is the one that people just don't have any faith in. And I think whether the, having a jury trial is a good thing or a bad thing, I think that's pretty much case dependent, in my opinion. Uh, but we talk about how it takes a village to raise a child. Well, it, would having a jury trial bring more awareness to these sort of cases? Would it keep parents together? Would it keep children out, out of the system as it does? Nobody has that answer. It would have to be a a guesswork, pretty much. Uh, you know, one um, one guest we had actually mentioned how much it would cost to have a jury trial in every family court case. You know, there are there's more than just constitutional protections because you know having a trial of your peers is a constitutional right. But there are more aspects to this question than than just should we have jury trials in family court. Um, so it's a broader scope, I think, that people need to look at when they ask that particular question. Well, I'm trying to think of why 
with 12 people weighing in on whether a dad should have Sunday overnight or not. I, I think you'll have 12 very good reasons as to whether that youngster should or shouldn't. So my takeaway from that, that good question is uh, that, that parents have to be encouraged to make their own decisions. So they have to self-direct. They have to come together and figure out what's best for them because judges can't. Because when a judge ends up having to make that call or a jury having to make that call, so I know that a judge is going to follow statute, follow case law, can't be creative, can't be do novel things because that's they're limited. But in addition, when push comes to shove, they may have a view, and I'm just going to pick this as an example, whether the youngster should be home, tucked in on Sunday night so that the next day they can get to school, or whether it's a good idea for the other parent to have the Sunday overnight so that that parent can take the child to school. That judge is going to make that call for that family. So how do I avoid that? Or that jury, right? Is it a unanimous jury? You're going to get 12 people to figure that one out? I doubt it, but maybe so. But at the end of the day, it really has to be mom and dad for this family. What's best for this family? And the only people that can make that call are the people themselves, right? They have to make. So if I had any encouragement and, and what have I learned what would be my takeaway? That there has to be more self-determination by people in their own future. That as much as I, I do believe in the court system and as much as I believe in the integrity of the judges that I work with, um, I still think we can't we can't supplant or, or be better than or equal to what two parents can decide for their own children. They, they have to make that call. And, and whatever we can do to aid them, make a collaborative decision to put aside their differences and focus on what's in their youngster's best interests. That's what we have to do to help them get there. You were talking before about the um, child's preferences. I wanted to know a little bit more. I know you said when the kids are younger, it might be a little harder, but um, how much weight you give to child preferences typically uh, and what um, court documentation do you feel should be uh, made public with regards to the children's statements, if anything, if they're interviewed regarding child preferences? Let me tell you the dilemma. So let me read to you um, what they do. So here's a statute, New Jersey state statute. The preference of the child when of sufficient age and capacity to reason so as to inform an intelligent decision. So whatever that means, you know, however old that youngster has to be to be able to respond to that particular element is however old. Um, and how does it come about? Well, sometimes you do have a custody expert on either side or one and they interview the youngster. Thing is, and I want you to remember that youngsters are told and understand that whatever their answer is, is revealed to both parents. Now, what child feels comfortable enough knowing that if they say, I want to be with mom or I want to be with dad, and then they know that dad, if it's mom or mom, if it's dad, it gets back to that parent. 
the situations where I've been in, because there is an absolute right to disclose what the child says, not only what the child says, but the questions presented. Both sides have an opportunity if it gets to this situation. The attorneys have an opportunity to list any number of questions that they think are appropriate for the judge to ask, right? And then the judge asks those questions of the youngster, and those questions and answers are recorded, and they're presented back to the parent. Now, that's tough. And if you as a youngster know that your parents will know exactly what you say, then oftentimes you say nothing or you say both parents, whether you in your heart of heart have a preference to be with one parent or another. So it's a tough situation, right? So I'm not worried about the world at large hearing the information. Isn't it difficult if both parents hear that information? I'm not saying it should be kept secret. I'm saying that's not what we do. We share the information, we share the interview, it's in a document, it's written, parents get a chance to see it. But isn't that difficult for the youngster, right? That's why parents that, you know, they oftentimes try to train judges how to interview a, a child. And I say, gee, I'd rather not be that person to do it. Cause I think youngsters have already been interviewed a lot. They've been interviewed by, if you have two professionals, they've been interviewed by that professional individually. They've been interviewed by that professional with one parent. They've been interviewed by the other professional with the other parent, and then they do it again. So you have two experts, you have six interviews. That poor child has been asked a number of questions, and then you throw in a judge also taking that youngster into a, a private room and, and speaking to them. Very hard for that little kid. You want to keep your youngster out of the court litigation process. Parents have to step up to the plate, the adults, right, and um, try to work it out. Did I answer that question? You answered it yeah. so beautifully, Judge Siegel. I can't agree with you more. You know, there's a wonderful decision out of New Jersey, and I believe it was a quote from Judge Keston. And um, when he was on the bench, he talked about that um, he would be hard-pressed to think that judges as human beings um, with limited psychological training um, would have the, uh, would know all the nuances. Uh, however bright the judge may be in um, speaking with a child uh, in chambers about, you know, choosing between a mother and a father. What a horrible thing for a child to have to do. And then he even spoke about the psychological community, that within that community, there's very, very few specialists that have the proclivity or the aptitude to be able to um make the right call in these decisions. So I appreciate so much that you said that it really needs to essentially be in the hands of the parents to step up and ensure that these children are not exposed and out of the court system um, uh, in, in that way in order to do what's really in the best interest of children. Jessica, let me ask you this. With your years of practicing family law and being on the bench and now back to family law, what are some of the things from your experience that you believe would benefit the family court system and the families in these cases that could possibly change for, for better outcomes? Well, I'm going to wave a magic wand then and see what I do ideally, not knowing whether it could be accomplished. Um, I think I'd start with an opportunity that we enhance 
um, the breadth of our judicial bench uh, to give us more judges uh, that can handle the number of cases that do find their way to us. Obviously, what we see as judges are those parents that can't resolve their cases. So I already see a distorted view. I'm confident that there are parents uh, that can work it out individually and can come to a conclusion. But they're, the ones that come before the court system are those that are having difficulty. And because we can only give them a short amount of time over an extended period of time, I would say if we had more judges, that would be helpful. Okay, part one. I would look at our community and extend the availability of social service agencies that can help the parents navigate through the court system. This is their first go round. So there's a lot that they don't know and they would benefit by professionals that could help them. I see all too many parents with children that have some special needs um, uh, that, that they don't know that children, that, that parents are. Uh, so I guess that's where I think um, the breadth of the social services that are needed to help parents who have children, um, whether they need help on their own, Co-parent counseling, they've always lived together. Now they're living separate. How do you co-parent together, right? Um, your own therapy, you've been a victim of domestic violence or not. Uh, you are heartsick because you're getting a divorce. Who do you talk to? Um, maybe you need family counseling because now you have a new uh, nuclear family, which are two separate families. Uh, so... So at the end of the day, there are so many social services that can help uh, parents get through the system. So I guess that and a little bit more time uh, that you, if you do have to go through the system with judges to help you do it, I guess those are the only two I can think of now, two areas. One of the things that um, Clint and I spoke about earlier was a very interesting concept of um, uh, judges sort of equaling uh, the playing field at the beginning and referring to uh, uh, people as parent and then the name of the parent, parent Julie, parent Clint, versus mother and father um, in terms of this gender neutral concept uh, in um, making sure that there's uh, a level playing field at the beginning. And I just wanted your thoughts on that. When you ask me that question, uh, you come, I think, with a lot of knowledge and information about parents who evidently feel that they have been thought of as less than if they had one title or another. Um, from my own vantage point, I don't think that I gave any weight to being a mom or a dad. Um, but uh, we do what we call diversity training because sometimes we unwittingly have prejudices and we don't realize that we do. And so judges really have to be trained on a regular basis not to um, have those prejudices. And we're such a global society now, we have to really understand even the nationalities of people that come before us. I, I remember just anecdotally, I, I had a case where in evaluating credibility, I think one of the parties just did not look at me. 
And I thought in credibility, aren't people supposed to look at one or eye to eye? And if they didn't look at me eye to eye, were they then not being forthright or truthful only to learn that in that particular nationality, it was disrespectful to, to look at a, a judge eye to eye. So that's something that I learned. So I, I think what I'm trying to say is we as judges have to be in tune on an ongoing basis to our limitations, not that we intend to be prejudiced, but we may be. So you asked a good question. I, I don't think I ever thought that there was a difference between a mom and a dad. I thought they were equal parents. But if, if that gives a sense of confidence um, or um, a feeling of neutrality to a parent, then I'm all for it. Because I know that in some instances, when I do my mediation and my arbitration, there's a request that we don't have a versus. We don't have a Sue Smith versus Joe Smith, but we have Joe Smith and a Sue Smith so that we know that we're dealing not against one another, but it's an and. So I'm all for it. You know, if, if that gives people a feeling that they are um, being reintroduced to the idea that we're all equal, then that's okay with me. Let me ask this, Joe Siegel. I don't know we, if there's momentum for that. <laughs> We are a global society yeah. nowadays. Uh, a lot of people look at the United States and, you know, the show deals with global aspects of family court. Other countries like Switzerland, Sweden, Norway, they have a general format and they have the lowest divorce rates. They have the highest child uh, outcomes for children in family court. And the United States is so far behind these countries. Why do you think that is on a global scale? Such a good question. And I didn't even know that that was true. So let me turn it to you. Why do you think that is? I, I don't know the answer to it. I, I, I know we are, you, anecdotally, I know we're our litigious society. We, we always say, well, I'll sue them. You know, uh, let's sue them, right? And and maybe that carries forward into the family situation. We think that if there's if we're being treated unfairly or unjustly, we'll litigate, right? And then we'll get justice in court. And then we all litigate in the court that by the time we go through that process, we're out more money than we lost, right? It took than we thought was necessary, right? So I don't know why it is. And I'm happy to hear that somewhere else is doing it better. And I don't know why we don't bring that better over here. So you, you've just educated me with something and I don't know why. So let me ask you, why is that? What, what of, is it? One of the there? answers that goes around in that aspect is training, family uh, mentality. You know, here in the United States, I, you know, I grew up all over the world and I've seen it. Here in the United States, a lot of people societal-wise, I think, still have the nuclear family, as you mentioned, the mom, dad, two children, and half a dog. Uh, but when you look at the social science, that has gone the way of the dodo, so to speak, as the term is used, a long time ago. We have now two moms, two dads, you know, parent A, parent B, non-binary, all these intermixed uh, aspects of the family unit that these other countries have acknowledged a long time ago, and we are still behind that nuclear family model that doesn't exist. Well, that might be one explanation, but I still don't know um, about it. And I, I think whatever they do, I wish we had it here. I guess in the passage of time, maybe we'll introduce a concept that we're late to the game in introducing. 
Um, and I'm happy to hear that they did it right somewhere else. I'm happy that uh, Judge Sebo so. took the time today to uh, inform our listeners about what they can do uh, in the court system to hopefully have better outcomes for children and families. Um, I wish that Judge Siegel was still on the bench. I know there are a lot of uh, judges that are being recalled uh, to the bench um, that have retired. And this is part and parcel of the shortage of judges uh, throughout the country. Um, I would um, ask all of our listeners uh, to fill out our podcast survey form to rate, review, and subscribe. Let us know what is helpful to them uh, in their family court journeys and in their um, uh, quest for information with regard to these issues. I wanted to thank you, Julie and uh, Clint, for having me on today. Your priorities are perfect. And if I could be helpful to parents uh, that also feel that children come from, thank you for thinking of me. It, it's been it's back. been an honor uh, to have you on the show. We have a way of close. Well, I'd say we. Uh, I have a way of closing out the show uh, with a particular question, and every guest that we've had on has been asked this question, has answered this question, and it basically comes down to, in your own personal belief and professional belief, do you believe that parental alienation is abuse? Assuming that there exists parental alienation. Not alienating behavior, but parental alienation is absolutely abuse. It is, from my vantage point, to to take a youngster who loves both his parents and manipulate that youngster so that they have a view uh, that one parent is good and the other parent is evil is um, is just a horrific, horrific result, which unfortunately carries forward to their future. You know, if the dilemma with getting this wrong, raising our children with with that problem, is that then they grow up to be adults and they continue that behavior as an adult. So it perpetuates itself. So pretty you horrific. Know, Mark Roseman, who started the Family Ties uh, magazine and um, created this platform, always says in situations like that, that it takes six generations to undo this um, based upon his social science research. And I respect so much that you have not only answered that question, but shown a light as a judge on the severity of blocked access of a parent to a child. Thank you, Julie. And with that, folks, we're going right. to end this episode. Uh, again, Judge Siegel, we we truly appreciate you taking your time and coming onto our show and helping us educate individuals pertaining to these issues that we talk about. CF Digital is rooted in the contemporary family magazine mission to preserve family ties, whether parents are estranged, children are alienated, or otherwise impacted by their societal trauma. In each episode of CF Digital, we deliver a candid, down-to-earth, and supportive interviewing style that is both educational and enjoyable. In this way, you will more easily learn the history and vital skills necessary for you to become more effective practitioners, child advocates, and parents.